Welcome back to Rajcast for episode 51. I'm Nachi Gupta. And I'm Mega Rajpal, and we're back with some more high-yield emergency medicine board review. Let's jump right into some questions. Your first patient is a 46-year-old man who presents with three weeks of progressive dull headache that is worse in the mornings. It's also worse with bending over and coughing. He denies fever and congestion. For the last two days, he's had some nausea and three episodes of vomiting. Which of the following characteristics, seen on neuroimaging, would be most consistent with a glioblastoma? Is it A, heterogeneous mass with central necrosis, B, lack of enhancement with administration of contrast, C, presence of calcifications, or D, well-circumscribed margins? Glioblastomas appear as choice A, heterogeneous mass with central necrosis. They're irregular appearing and have peripheral enhancement. Central necrosis is represented by hypodensity on imaging and surrounding vasogenic edema and mass effect are pretty common. So they told us that this man had a glioblastoma, but let's dive into the presentation a bit. Glioblastomas are the most common primary malignant brain tumor in adults, and patients present with a progressive headache, vomiting, neurologic deficits, and seizures over a fairly short duration, usually less than three months. Headaches are actually the most common clinical finding, and they typically occur in the morning. They're described as dull, constant, and may be exacerbated by maneuvers that increase intracranial pressure, such as bending over or valsalva. Motor weakness is the most common neurologic finding, although it may be subtle on exam. Prognosis in these patients is dismal, with most patients dying within 12 to 18 months of diagnosis. And a little pearl here, while glioblastomas are the most common primary malignant brain tumor in adults, medulloblastomas are the most common primary malignant brain tumors in children. Let's discuss the other answer choices also. Most glioblastomas have intense enhancement of the peripheral margins, so answer choice B, lack of enhancement with administration of contrast, is incorrect. Glioblastomas can present with associated hemorrhage, but answer choice C, presence of calcifications, that's uncommon. And as we mentioned earlier, the margins of a glioblastoma are usually irregular, much like most malignant tumors. So answer choice D, well-circumscribed margins, that's also incorrect. Treatment of choice for glioblastomas includes maximal surgical resection, radiotherapy, and chemotherapy. After a lengthy family discussion, you walk over to the fast track area and see a 16-year-old African-American boy with a scalp rash. On exam, it's a 5 by 5 centimeter boggy and thickened area of the right parietal cap with an overlying scaly, crusty plaque and hair loss. The lesion appears yellowish-green under a woods lamp. What is the treatment of choice? Is it A, clotrimazole ointment, B, ketoconazole shampoo, C, oral amphotericin B, or D, oral griseofulvin? Sounds like our patient has a carry-on, which is an abscess caused by a fungal infection most commonly on the scalp. This presents as a boggy, pus-filled lesion with significant inflammation as in our patient. The overlying skin often has an eczematous, itchy rash, and hair loss. The patient can also have nearby lymphadenopathy, fever, and malaise. A carry-on is best treated with a 6-8 to eight week course of answer choice D, oral griseofulvin. Antibiotics may also be indicated if a bacterial superinfection is present. And they mentioned a finding on Wood's lamp, a yellowish-green appearance. What's that all about? Exam under a Wood's lamp for a carry-on will reveal a yellow-green fluorescence, and scrapings and hair samples can be sent for microscopy and fungal culture to confirm the diagnosis. The fungal infections that typically cause a carry-on, by the way, are Microsporum canis and the Trichophyton genus. Going over the other answer choices, Clotrimazole ointment is an antifungal most useful in yeast infections, athlete's foot, and ringworm. Answer choice B, antifungal shampoos with ketoconazole, those may be useful to prevent transmission to others. And answer choice C, amphotericin B, 
That is an antifungal medication that can be used intravenously to treat systemic fungal infections. Side effects of infoterrible, I mean infotericin B, to be aware of, are renal injury, anaphylaxis, hypotension, fever, and headaches. As you're prescribing some griseofulvin, the nurse pulls you to the resuscitation bay for a 22-year-old man who was recently diagnosed with schizophrenia. He has altered mental status. His blood pressure is 160 over 80, pulse is 130, and temperature is 39.5 degrees. He is noted to be confused and diaphoretic. He has muscle rigidity and a tremor in his hands. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, malignant hyperthermia, B, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, C, serotonin syndrome, or D, tyramine reaction? Young guy with a recent diagnosis of schizophrenia, altered mental status, muscle rigidity, hyperthermia, and autonomic instability. This is a home run for choice B, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. That's right. This patient was likely started on an antipsychotic medication when he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and this led to NMS. NMS is a true emergency and needs to be diagnosed quickly in the emergency department. It is a life-threatening illness characterized by muscle rigidity, autonomic instability, altered mental status, and hyperthermia. It typically occurs soon after initiation or dose adjustment of a dopaminergic or antipsychotic. Other risk factors for the development of NMS include high-dosage, high-potency antipsychotic medications, parenteral formulations, dehydration, preceding psychomotor agitation, and previous episodes of NMS. And since this is a life-threatening ED diagnosis, let's talk treatment. Treatment of NMS includes discontinuing the offending medication, of course, benzos, airway management, and supportive care. Bromocryptine, amantadine, and dantrolene are also available as treatment options but haven't been shown to consistently provide benefit. Let's discuss the incorrect answer choices here also. Choice A, malignant hyperthermia, that occurs with the use of certain anesthetic agents like halothane and succinylcholine. That can also manifest with severe muscle rigidity and hyperthermia though. And choice C, serotonin syndrome, that usually occurs as a result of a drug interaction between medications that increase the amount of serotonin in the synaptic cleft or from an overdose of an SSRI. Neither of these is true for our patient. In choice D, tyramine reaction, that is a drug-food interaction that occurs when a patient taking a monoamine oxidase inhibitor ingests a tyramine-containing food. Symptoms start immediately following ingestion and include headache, hypertension, flushing, and diaphoresis. Our next patient is a 21-year-old woman who presents with painful urination. She has no vaginal discharge and she is not sexually active. Which of the following is most sensitive for a urinary tract infection on urine dipstick testing? Is it A, bacteria, B, blood, C, leukocyte esterase, or D, nitrites? A sensitive test will allow you to rule out UTI if negative. Let's use process of elimination to answer this one. Choice D, nitrites, is very specific for a UTI, which means if it's positive, there's a high likelihood of a UTI. Choice B, blood, that has a lower sensitivity for infection and is also pretty nonspecific, as it can be present during menses, kidney stones, urethral trauma, malignancy, or an infection. So that can't be right. That leaves choices A and C. Choice A, bacteria, or a urine dipstick, that is an indirect measurement and is less sensitive than the actual microscopic evaluation of the urine. So the correct answer here is choice C, leukocyte esterase. Leukocyte esterase is an enzyme found in neutrophils. This enzyme is not normally present in urine. Presence of leukocyte esterase on a dipstick has a sensitivity of 75 to 96% for detecting pyuria associated with a urinary tract infection. Also of note, nitrites, which are very specific for UTI, are produced by nitrate reductase of gram-negative bacteria acting on urinary nitrate leading to nitrite. 
but in order to generate a positive test, the bacteria must act on the urine for six hours. So the sensitivity of the test is limited by the time requirement for nitrate reductase to work. The first void of the day is most likely to test positive in an infected person. Nachi, you're up for the next one. Which of the following findings would be consistent with the diagnosis of Tetralogy of Fallot? Is it A, bounding pulses and a continuous machine-like murmur? B, decreased pulses in lower extremities? C, increased pulmonary vascular markings on chest radiography? Or D, loud single-second heart sound with a harsh systolic murmur? Let's go through this one systematically. Choice A, continuous machine-like murmur, that's a PDA or patent ductus arteriosus, so that's not right. Choice B, decreased pulses in the lower extremities, they're leading you towards a coarctation of the aorta with that one. Decreased lower extremity pulses aren't seen in Tetralogy of Fallot. Choice C, increased pulmonary vascular markings. In Tetralogy of Fallot, there's right-to-left shunting due to the ventricular septal defect, so you'd actually see decreased pulmonary vascular markings. That leaves choice D, a loud single-second heart sound with a harsh systolic murmur. And that murmur can be heard best at the left sternal border. Other possible findings include clubbing of the fingers and toes and polycythemia due to chronic hypoxemia. Tetralogy of flow is actually the most common cause of cyanotic congenital heart disease beyond infancy. It's characterized by four abnormalities that can be remembered with the mnemonic PROVE. That's P for pulmonic stenosis, R for right ventricular hypertrophy, O for overriding aorta, and V for VSD. On a chest x-ray, you might also see a boot-shaped heart. Symptoms are worse with crying and feeding due to worsening pulmonary outflow obstruction, and symptoms improve with squatting that increases systemic vascular resistance. All right, Mega, you're up for the last question of this episode, and it's your favorite topic, eyeballs. A 73-year-old man presents with painless vision loss in the right eye. Which of the following on fundoscopic exam is most characteristic of a central retinal vein occlusion? Is it A, cherry red fovea, B, pale retina, C, papilledema, or D, retinal hemorrhages? Central retinal vein occlusion causes increased resistance to venous flow in the retinal venous system, leading to increased pressure and ultimately causing answer choice D, retinal hemorrhages. Central retinal vein occlusion occurs as a result of thrombus formation in the retinal vein, and it can be secondary to mechanical compression, sluggish circulation, vasculitis, and hypercoagulability. It's often described as a blood and thunder appearance, and the retinal veins may appear dilated and tortuous with macular and optic disc edema. Ultimately, the pressure increase can also lead to retinal ischemia and subsequent vision loss. The degree of vision loss depends on how much venous obstruction actually occurs. And there are two types of central retinal vein occlusion, non-ischemic and ischemic. Non-ischemic is usually mild with good retinal perfusion. On the other hand, ischemic results in venous stasis and increased vascular back pressure. This leads to decreased arterial flow to the retina and can present with decreased visual acuity and an afferent pupillary defect. Central retinal vein occlusion requires emergent ophthalmology consult. Treatment options include antivascular endothelial growth factor, dexamethasone implant, and intravitreal triamcinolone. Let's quickly discuss the other answer choices also. Choices A and B, cherry red fovea and pale retina, these are both seen in the case of central retinal artery occlusion. Don't get these mixed up. Choice C, papilledema, that's representative of conditions that cause increased intracranial pressure. It's usually bilateral, and the optic disc appears edematous with blurred edges. All right, let's close this episode out with a rapid review. Glioblastoma is the most common primary malignant brain tumor in adults and presents as a heterogeneous mass with central necrosis. 
A carry-on is a boggy, pus-filled lesion caused by a fungal infection of the scalp. It's treated with a 6-8 week course of oral griseofulvin. New antipsychotic medication administration and a presentation of altered mental status, muscle rigidity, hyperthermia, and autonomic instability is classic for the diagnosis of neuroleptic malignant syndrome, a true life-threatening emergency. On urine dipstick, leukocyte esterase is sensitive while nitrites are specific for urinary tract infection. Tetralogy of Fallot is the most common cyanotic congenital heart disease and is associated with a harsh systolic murmur that improves with squatting. Central retinal vein occlusion presents with sudden painless monocular vision loss with a classic blood and thunder appearance and retinal hemorrhages. That wraps up Roshcast episode 51. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast, and you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you'd like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality reviews.